Hi, I'm Rick Atkins, pastor here at CFCC. Welcome. We hope you enjoy this sermon and that God uses it to grow you in your relationship with Him. Before we get started, our goal is not to replace your investment in a local church with online content. We were made for community. We want to encourage you to engage in a local church with your gifts. See, when the people of God invest in the community of God, they experience the transformative power of God. And that is our hope and prayer for you. Again, thanks for joining us and we hope you enjoy the sermon. Father, right now we ask, God, just let your presence fall. Fill this room. May your protection, may your provision fall on these families, moms and dads, committing to lead, to love, to show, to model what it means to love you more than anything. God, we pray this blessing over them and the generations to come until we're all home with you, God. Keep our eyes focused. May we see Jesus clearly this morning as we gather, as we read, as we study. God, we love you. We praise you. It's in Christ's name we pray. And all God's people said, amen. Amen, Amen, church. You guys can have a seat. Well, happy Mother's Day. To all of you watching online, happy Mother's Day. We're excited you joined us today. I pray that your time with family and friends today, moms, that you are honored, that you are blessed, know that you are loved. And we couldn't do this without you. So thank you for all that you do for us. And I'm sure I speak that on behalf of all children and men in the room. So thank you, and I pray again that you have an incredible day. Welcome to week five of our series, Stand Firm. So if you have a Bible, go ahead and grab it. If you have it on an electronic device, go ahead and turn it on to 1 Peter chapter 2. Don't you just love the directness of Peter? If you've been with us in this series, Peter doesn't pull any punches. He kind of goes right at it. He speaks very plainly and pointedly. And once again, we're going to have a text and and some verses that are going to really cause us to perk up in our seats and maybe at times push back a little bit. My hope is that we wouldn't push back today, that we would lean in. We would lean in and let the Holy Spirit do his work. And so as we think about the book of 1 Peter, it's a book about suffering. Remember the backdrop of this letter that Peter writes to us is suffering. And as we consider his message Understand that the priorities that are informing Peter's discussion throughout, he's driven as he talks about the Christian household, as we kind of moved into that last week and into more of that today, by this apologetic, this evangelistic concern. Peter wants us and wants to help us as his readers to live on mission in the midst of difficult circumstances and times, which all of us face throughout our lives. He wants to help us. He wants to lead us in changing how others see Christians when, when, and, and those who may oppose Christianity, how we live our lives, that they might see the gospel differently. And even in doing that, our testimony and how we walk through difficult times, maybe even to lead others into a faith with Christ as well. So that's Peter's agenda. And it's important to notice at the very heart of what he wants to do with that evangelistic concern, at the very heart of that is the way of helping believers present themselves and the difference of the gospel when it comes to suffering, when it comes to opposition, 
how we live in the midst of that, how we respond to that. That is Peter's word to us. And so when we get into these verses in 18 through 25, where we'll be today, and even really beyond that, his focus is looking at, he's going to look at suffering for Christ's sake. It becomes much more pointed. It becomes much more emphasized. Peter really is saying to us, if we're faithful, if you and I are faithful, if we are faithful as Christians in living our lives for Jesus, living on mission together as his people, there is a possibility that there are going to be those around us who will not like that, who will not support that. So we should expect some negative reactions to our Christian faithfulness, to our witness to Jesus. That we shouldn't be surprised when others call us narrow-minded or dogmatic or hateful or exclusive. To follow Jesus is to stand apart from the moral chaos. To embrace convictions about God and sin and salvation about ourselves, about one another, about about our love to God, our love to neighbor that runs contrary to the mainstream of culture. It really goes against the flow. If you study Jesus' life in the Gospels, you will see that Jesus lived his life against the grain. He went against the flow of culture. And so 1 Peter is designed to be a part of a kind of a guide in helping us to suffer well, to suffer well for Jesus in hostile territory. It's a book to come back to. Maybe you're not in a place where you're experiencing that, but you will be. It's going to happen. Maybe this is a book to come back to. I want that you make note, hey, this is the letter I need to read in the midst of suffering. So real quick, there's three types of suffering that we experience. There's natural suffering, there's just suffering, there's unjust suffering. We'll all face each one of them throughout our lives. Natural suffering, primarily illness, aging, death, the kinds of suffering we experience as human beings living in a fallen world. And actually the word natural probably isn't the right word because it's not natural, right? It's unnatural, it's abnormal That's why we feel so uneasy about those things. Because it's not the way the world was meant to be from the beginning. Just suffering. Suffering, you know, some suffering is a natural consequence of what we do, of our actions. It's just, it's just suffering. For example, you procrastinate and then you feel the pressure of completing, you know, the job or, or, or the project. You feel the stress of finishing, right? You break the law and you're in court and you feel, you know, that's just, it's the, it's the law of, you know, you reap what you sow. Galatians, right? Paul talks a lot about that. It's the, it comes as a consequence of living in a world of cause and effect. So there is some just suffering. But the third one is unjust suffering. And this is the kind that Peter is going to talk to us about this morning. The kind that we experience when we don't join in sin and we get exiled from our friends or when our boss pressures us to uh, be, do things that are unethical or go against our convictions or you go out of your way to help someone and they respond with disdain or rejection. Those are just a few examples and, and hopefully just to help us understand this unjust suffering, which is what Peter again is going to address in our text. So three principles of suffering that we see in our text. So here's the first one, before the face of God. And I'll explain 
what that means as we get into this. Look at 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 18 to 20. Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, and not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. For this is a gracious thing, when mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. Verse 20, for what credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. So verse 18, the very first verse of our text can read to us as a very troubling verse, right? Can seem like a very troubling. We immediately go, wait, hold on a second. This is wrong. And yet Peter isn't speaking against the wrongness. But we have to frame this in its historical context. And it's very important as you study Scripture to understand the time frame of which it was written. Doesn't mean it's going to excuse the things that were happening. But it's important that we have a better understanding and grasp of what is being said. I mean, I could spend the rest of our time working through this one verse. But that's not where God has us this morning. So let me share just a few things about it. First, there is a difference between Roman Greco slavery and American slavery. There's quite a few differences, some really big ones that separate the two. In the Roman world, there were three classes of people. There were Roman citizens who had full rights and protection. There were the freed men, freed women, freed men who had restrictive protections but yet enjoyed a great deal of autonomy. And then there was the servant class. All right, these were the men and women largely employed managers and helpers in the home. All right, this is the class that Peter's speaking to in our, in our text. One commentator explained it like this. He said, a closer parallel today might be someone who received a free college education in exchange for serving in the military, or, or medical students who receive a wage but are bound to the institution for a set amount of time. Does that excuse the practice of slavery as we understand it? No. In fact, the Bible condemns it explicitly, the practice of slavery found in our history, found in American slavery. Enslaving is listed as against the gospel and sinful. 1 Timothy, uh, Timothy chapter 1. And you can look at that list that Paul has there. So again, Peter starts this section of his discussion of the ancient Christian household and life within it by addressing Christians who have come to faith in Christ as household servants, all right? They're servants in a household, mostly slaves. The Bible you know, translations use slaves and servants there. Some 25% of society in the Roman Greco world were servants of this kind. And, and it had no boundaries, no race, creed, sex, socioeconomic status, no boundaries like American slavery did. All right, so there is some big differences here. And many of those who were in this place then were highly educated people. Some were doctors in the household. Some were teachers. Some were accountants, if you will, and so on, charged with the management and the order of the ancient estate. So hopefully you can see the difference here. So I'm not trying to you move us away from talking about something that we know is wrong. The Bible says is wrong. And yet the fact remains that given the minority position of the church then in society at that time, there really was very little immediate prospect of any kind of social change that would be necessary to bring an, an end to the institution of slavery in those days. And so these people, you could say, were stuck. They were kind of stuck. Maybe you can relate to that. Maybe you can relate to that aspect of being stuck. You're in a place where you feel like you're stuck, and how do you respond? Like, how do you live in the midst of being stuck? 
I mean, they really can't get out from under, at least not easily, out from under the bondage in which they find themselves. And so the question comes from them that Peter is trying to answer. Now that they've become Christians, how shall we live as servants in a pagan household? How does following Jesus inform the way I behave, even in oftentimes some intolerable conditions for sure that are upon me? These are, this is what Peter's trying to speak to them as he speaks to us about even those places that we find ourselves, the injustice, the, the unjust suffering. So Peter's recognizing the injustice that was done to some that were in these situations. But he's saying, here's what, here's what I'm going to... Here's what I'm going to invite you to be and invite you to do. In those moments of injustice, your responsibility is to live submissively to the authority of God, even realizing that in brokenness, that authority is still being exercised, even though there are unjust leaders. And do what is good. Be respectful, not just to those who are gentle and good, but to those who are unjust. There's an apologetic here. There's an evangelistic concern here. We keep going in verses 19 and 20. We've been called to be a representative of Jesus, to suffer for what is good, to suffer for his sake, to suffer for his kingdom, to suffer moments of injustice. And Peter makes it very clear. He says, for what credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? See, he's not talking about suffering that's the result of our sin or or weakness or our failure. See, and I already mentioned this, sometimes our suffering is the result of our own rebellion. (laughs) Sometimes our suffering is the result of our own foolishness. We have all, all of us, a great ability to do this, complicate our own lives, don't we? Amen? That's just suffering. (laughs) Sometimes what we call persecution is not persecution at all. It's the result of Christian arrogance. It's the result of Christian pride. It's the result of Christian self-righteousness that causes us to be mean. It causes us to be arrogant and condemn other people that we don't know and that don't know the Lord. That's not persecution when they push back. Peter's saying, in this broken world that has forsaken God, that has forsaken His wisdom, His law, you will suffer when you do good. And again, that's a calling. Now notice verse 19, he says, for this is a gracious thing. Isn't it interesting that he, Peter puts God's grace right next to the experience of suffering? Like you don't, you don't think of God's grace and suffering together. Like you don't, you don't put those together, yet Peter does for us here. This suffering has something to do with God's grace. In fact, he says it's, a gracious, it's gracious in the sight of God, which is where we get our principle before the face of God, right? It's precious in the sight of God. So what's Peter talking about? The word gracious means grace, right? In the New Testament, it's grace. He's pulling on the themes he's already talked about. So first, when you and I suffer because of allegiance to Jesus, when, when I am willing to lose reputation, when I am willing to lose possessions, to suffer personally for the sake of Jesus Christ, this is something that can only be done and born out of worship. It comes out of worship. The kind of willingness to personally sacrifice is only going to happen when God is the most valuable treasure in our lives. When Jesus is our supreme treasure in our heart. When there's nothing more important than Him, than His honor, than His presence. There's nothing that we value more than His presence, than His grace, than His love. And when we worship God in that way, God is pleased and honoring 
Secondly, Peter has made it clear in the first chapter that God calls us to suffering. He calls us to it. He calls us to moments of trial and difficulty because those moments work grace into our hearts. Sometimes that's the only way to work grace into our lives. God uses those hard moments. God uses the moments of suffering to take us beyond the boundaries of our own wisdom and our own strength so that we have to rely on Him and Him alone. And some of us, that's the only way we get there. It's going through hard times. See, the world uses suffering to harden people. God uses it to soften. He uses these moments of suffering to pry open our hands. So that, so that we would let go of the things of this world. We would let go of the things that we've looked to to give us rest and peace and joy and hope and that we would rely on Him and Him alone. It's a, in a word, it's a gracious thing then to suffer unjustly because God uses those moments to transform us, to change us. And until He returns or He calls us home, we give evidence every day that we are a people in need of change. And thirdly, God uses our suffering unjustly and our endurance as a witness. And that's, that's Peter's point. As a witness to a watching world. Remember Peter's model? We're called to live as representatives of Christ. We don't do that in moments of formal ministry. We do that wherever God's placed us. We live understanding that we represent the Savior. And we don't do that just with our words. But we do that with the way we live. And so in those moments, in, the, in a way that's pleasing to God, we are willing to face personal loss for the sake of Jesus. Our life is preaching the gospel in those moments. In those moments, the gospel's being shared. So what opportunities right now, in the situations, in the locations, in the relationships where God has placed you, is he calling you to preach the gospel with the way you live? And we remember that we do that Corum Deo, which is a Latin phrase which means before the face of God. His sight is upon us. That's what the last part of this text says. In his sight. And his smile is before us. Here's the second principle. Jesus is our example. Peter doesn't leave us hanging. Look at verses 21 to 23. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. In our calling to suffer. So if you didn't think it was a calling, hopefully you do now. In our calling to suffer, Peter gives us this very sweet principle to hold on to. And it's the principle that Jesus is our example in suffering. We are called to something. We are never called to something without a, an example, without a model, without you know, something to work off of. And Jesus is our perfect example. One pastor said, of, said this. He said, all of us, as sin still remains in us, surely have the ability to trouble our own trouble. We have ways of making our suffering worse, and we end up not only suffering the original suffering, but suffering now the way that we've chosen to suffer that has made the suffering worse. He's talking about when we're in the suffering, we can make it worse if we don't follow the example of Jesus. 
And so Peter says, Jesus is this example for us. It's a wonderful example. The word he used there as the example uh, originally used, was used as a template to, to describe a template you would trace, like you would outline, right? You would trace out the lettering so that you could reproduce it carefully. Christ is the template that we are to trace in every detail, in every angle, as he as we describes his character, to, is to be carefully replicated in the handwriting of our, of our own lives. Christ is the original. Our lives are to trace the details of his character so that the world looking at us sees some type of echo, however dim it may be, of Jesus Christ. Here's what he says in Jesus as our example. Verse 22, he committed no sin. This is what he starts with. Jesus is our example, and then he says he committed no sin. And what that says to us, that suffering does not change the rules of the game. Like when you're in the middle of suffering, the rules don't change. Suffering does not give us permission to do things God has not called us to do. Yet that's what we find ourselves sometimes in suffering trying to do is run into paths or in, into places that God hasn't called us to, yet we're just trying to alleviate the suffering. So in Jesus' suffering, he committed no sin. In fact, in suffering, it's all more important to believe that what God has ordained is right and believe what God has called us to is right to not let our morality and ethics and attitudes and behavior be dictated by external circumstances that are pressing in on us. And Peter points us to meditate on the Word of God. That's one of the ways that we do this. Isaiah 53 is where most of these verses come from. As he talks about, Isaiah talks about the suffering servant. Almost as if Peter himself were saying, this is how I did it. Here's how I endured. How I kept running a race. I'd open the book, the book, and I'd meditate on his character. I'd make him my study, and I'd cry out to him, God, make me more like Jesus. Make me more like him. I want to be like Jesus. Jesus remained committed to the will of his Father even through injustice. Torture on the cross, even to death. He remained committed. That's our example. Remember, so look at it. He says, he committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. Jesus never sought to lift or alleviate his suffering by compromising the truth. Jesus was never willing to lie himself out of difficulty. Jesus remained committed to his Father. It also says, when he was reviled, when he was threatened, he did not threaten and revile in return. So, so he didn't seek to hurt those who were hurting him. He didn't get down and get dirty, right? He didn't give himself to the vengeance. Here was God. God Almighty, right? Jesus, God Almighty. Great and powerful, right? He he could have called on legions of angels, right? But he was unwilling to do that. Do you know why he was unwilling to do that? One commentator responded to this passage like this. He said, the passage tells us why he was unwilling to do that. Because Jesus was a theist. Jesus believed in God. That's what the last part of the text says, right? He trusted himself to the one who judges justly. He believed in God. He believed in the presence. He believed in the power. He believed in the justice and the wisdom and sovereignty of God. Jesus did not believe that this world is driven by fate or by circumstance or or by chaos. He, He believed that everything that happened happened because of a good, wise, holy, gracious, loving, wise, and sovereign God. 
who is the ultimate definition that it, that, of everything that is right, true, and good. And so Jesus was a theist. He believed God. Do we really believe that? Do we demonstrate the true belief of our heart in moments when we are receiving treatment that we don't deserve? It's then that we demonstrate whether we really do believe in the Lord of heaven and earth who rules all things by his power and by his strength. And nothing happens apart from his will. That's a tough, a tough principle. It's then, though, when we literally demonstrate that we believe. And that's our witness. And that's our testimony. So Jesus is our example. Lastly, and we suffer in light of the cross. This is the third principle. Verses 24 and 25. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you've been healed. For you are straying like sheep but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. So God calls us to the imitation of Christ. And he supplies the grace we need that we may grow in that imitation. And he does it by means of the cross. So where are our resources found to do this, to, to stay, endure, persevere? Peter, where, where is this? And you notice what Peter does? He always takes us back to the cross. It's like, this is where your strength is. This is where your power is. They flow out from the cross of Jesus Christ. And so we learn to live in light of the cross. Now to comfort us, Peter, like a good pastor, has to humble us first. And he does that by the clearest statement of gospel provision probably given in the New Testament. And that's verse 24, what we just read. He himself, speaking of Jesus, bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. It's a precious statement of the gospel. And, and Peter's not talking about something in the past. He's not talking about past forgiveness. He's not talking about future hope. He's talking about right here, right now. Those words actually point to the here and now. What he's saying is this. Jesus shed his blood for us so that in these difficult moments, in the unjust trials, we would have the power to say no to sin and do what is right. You see, even suffering preaches the gospel. Even suffering preaches the gospel because in those moments... I know I can't work up a right response. I know I don't have the strength to go through this. I, I know I don't have the wisdom. I know this is beyond me. If there isn't a Jesus and if there isn't a cross, there's no hope for me in this moment. But church, there is a Jesus and there is a cross. And Jesus died so that I could say no to envy. I could say no to anger. I could say no to doubt. I could say no to fear. I could say no to jealousy. I could say no to vengeance. And I could say no to the sins of the mouth. And walk forward and do what is right, not because I'm righteous, but because I've been made righteous in Him. And if that's not enough to celebrate, Peter gives us verse 25. For you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Listen, we'll finish. You and I never suffer outside of the care of our Redeemer. We never suffer outside of the care of our Redeemer because he has drawn us to himself. We are his sheep. If you are God's child... It's impossible for you to be in a situation 
a location, a circumstance, or even a relationship that's outside of his shepherding care. If that's true, we can endure. And as you're enduring, your life brings glory to God. As you're enduring, you're growing up in grace. As you're enduring, you're witnessing to the world. Let's pray. Father, God, thank you for this entire text, but especially this morning for the reminder and the sweet promise given to us there at the end. That there is no place, no place that we could be in our lives as your children, son or daughter of the king, that you are not present in shepherding. That you're not overseeing. That you're not providing. There is no place, whether it be in the darkest of moments of life or in the brightest mountaintop experience, there is no place, God, you will never leave us nor forsake us. Your faithfulness is forever. In spite of us, you're there. God, let us hold on to that beautiful truth. There is no place outside of your care for us. Let us be reminded of that when we go through suffering, especially suffering when we're trying to do good trying to make the right decisions, trying to walk the right way, and suffering happens and it comes. Let us be reminded that you're with us, that you're using it to take our faith beyond the boundaries and the limits, to take us to a place of affection and love for you that we've never experienced before, to open our hands away from the things of this world that are passing by to grab hold of you, the eternal one, the one who loves us, the one who gave his life for us. So God, we're so grateful, we're thankful that we're never alone in our suffering and that you use it to transform us to be more like Jesus, who is our savior, who is our king. God, make us more like Jesus. We pray this in his name. Amen.